Today's scripture reading will be taken from 2 Samuel, chapter 12, verses 1 to 25. You can refer to your Bibles or to the screen above. Today's scripture reading will be done by Sister Sherlyn. Good morning. If you need a Bible, there are Bibles at the sides as well. Otherwise, you can follow along on the screen. Okay, we are continuing from the responsive reading. We're going on to the next chapter, chapter 12, starting at verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had none except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over, because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any food from them with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him the child is dead? 
he may do something desperate. David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead? He asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request they served him food and he ate. His attendants asked him, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everyone. Can you hear me? That's great. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, we pray that you speak to us clearly through your word, that it will just not be head knowledge to us, but we will learn what it means to know your character, to rely on your grace. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Tuesday, two weeks ago, Ms. Lisa Francis finished her work in a bank in the Hawaiian town of Lehaina. And she made her way home, she was on the road, and she looked, and she saw this. She saw this huge firestorm coming towards her on the road. She was caught in traffic, there were many cars there, and the fire got stronger and stronger, closer and closer. Finally, the flames got too close, and the people around her got out of their cars, and they abandoned their cars and climbed over the firewall, and they jumped into the ocean. The fire above them roared, right? And, uh... Sorry, I didn't realize there was sound. Okay. But anyway, as you could see, hundreds of people went over the fire, the seawall, they went to the ocean, and uh, it got hotter and hotter, and it felt as if there was an oven cooking them. There was smoke was choking them. So they got deeper and deeper into the ocean. And as you can see just from these brief photographs and the video, it was terrifying. Imagine what it must have been like to be in the ocean there during that time. Afterwards, when they were interviewed, they asked them what it was like, what they felt like. And one of them described this firestorm as an apocalypse. An apocalypse. Now, hearing that word apocalypse reminded me of, to myself of what it must be like when the last day God doesn't just bring a firestorm to Lahaina and Hawaii. But God's judgment is this metaphorical firestorm which is coming to the whole world 
the whole universal world, not just in Hawaii, but it will affect us as well in Singapore, you and me, all of us who have to face this huge firestorm of God's wrath. And I wonder for ourselves in that day, we won't have an ocean to climb into, right? Where will we find our safety? And today's passage, I think, is really important because it's to calm us and to show us that we will be safe when that day comes, the day of apocalypse. Now, before we begin today's passage, we really need to know context, right? So the context is really important. We just want to go quickly. We see now God had brought his people out of Egypt to the promised land. But soon after, things had been going down and down. In the book of Judges, there was more and more sin. And then afterwards, we saw the priest Eli corrupting the priesthood and the temple system. Just recently, we saw the bad king Saul who was corrupting the kingship and the monarchy in Israel. But the last 25 chapters, things have been going up and up. The last 25 chapters, we've been introduced to the new king, David. And he was the good king, right? He didn't murder King Saul when he had the opportunity to. He was a righteous king who judged righteously when people did wrong things. He was also a successful king because he kept pushing back the enemies of God's people out of Egypt and he brought security to God's people, which is what they wanted. But most importantly, we also saw that he was God's king. And last week, remember we heard God saying, I will establish your throne forever. We saw over the last few weeks that he was a king with God's heart. And he was chosen by God and he was with God. And so for the last 25 chapters, really, in the narrative, it's just been a series of highs and higher and highest, right? So as we come to this point in the narrative, it's almost as if David is like the, at the Mount Everest of the narrative. He's like, he can't get any higher, he can't get any more impressive than he is. And that's where we are as we come to today's passage. In the spring at the time where kings go off to war, David sent Joab with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now this is quite interesting, right? We need to pay attention to what the author is doing here because he can be a bit subtle as he's doing his description. But notice what he says, at the time where kings are expected to go off to war, but David remained in Jerusalem. It's almost as if subtly the author is telling us that David is not the same man as we thought he was in the last 25 chapters. He should be going off to war. This is the time where kings go off to war, but he is remaining in Jerusalem. It's a bit like, He's a bit, getting a bit complacent, right? a bit lazy, shirking his duties, while his army is fighting life and death battles out besieging Rabbah. He is chilling. Right? He's chilling. The next passage tells us a bit more about what he's doing. He is chilling. Right? One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of his palace. Now, Interesting, right? What is he doing here? He's like sleeping late into the afternoon. It's almost as if David has become one of those coffee shop uncles, you know, that you see drinking a bottle of beer at lunch, and then he has this nap to late into the evening. So he gets up and he walks on the roof of his palace. We presume his palace in those days was like the highest building or the tallest building in Jerusalem. He would be like uh, walking in Marina Bay Sands at the top there, right? He's looking down on everybody else. And what does he see? From his roof, he sees this woman bathing, and she is very 
beautiful. Literally, the words in the original are, she is good to look at. So his looking became leering, right? The good king is coming like the chikopek, right? The dirty old man, the pervert, looking at this beautiful woman. She's good to look at, but she's not good to look at for him, right? Because we know that she is not single. She's Uriah's wife. So his looking became leering, but he doesn't stop there, right? Like as soon as he found out that she was somebody else's wife, he should have stopped. But instead, his leering became coveting. He sent someone to find out about her and to get her. So he breaks the law of coveting, right? You shall not have your neighbor's wife. But he doesn't stop. He sends a messenger to get her, or if you look at the ESV translation, to take her, and he sleeps with her. Now, we're not told about Bathsheba's role in all this, whether she came willingly, or whether she was pressured to, or whether she felt that she had to. But what we do know is, for King David, he was abusive of his position, right? He was meant to serve the people, but now he was selfishly, selfishly taking for himself. Now, how shocking it must have been for the first readers or the first audience of Samuel. Like for us, we are kind of a bit jaded. We've known this story, especially for Christians. And like, okay, well, we know David did this. But within the context, that's why the context is so important. Of the last 25 chapters, this is a king who's done no wrong. He's at the Mount Everest, the highest of highest of the peaks. So he's like the best that Israel an offer, right? He's like the best of us. And so what a terrible, earth-shattering disappointment and letdown must be to see David sin. I knew someone like this before who embarked on this slippery slope of sin. He was a Christian, a university medalist, Bible study leader, elder in church, very successful in his career. He also similarly followed this slippery slope of sin. He was complacent, indulged in pornography. Over the years, his pornography became worse. Started chatting to people online, started going to massage parlors, then went to prostitutes. In the end, he destroyed his marriage, his family, and himself. He just never got off the slippery slope in the same way that David didn't as well. So I wonder for ourselves, as we See, just at this very early stage of this narrative, whether for us, we are on this slippery slope to sin. I, mean, I don't know where you are in your life. It doesn't necessarily have to lead to adultery. But Jesus says very clearly in Matthew chapter 5, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown to hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So the take home for us, right at the very beginning, as we reflect on David's behavior is, even if he is the highest and the best of us, he gets on this slippery slope to sin. I wonder whether for ourselves, as we reflect on David's behavior, whether for us it's a warning. Maybe we are somewhere on this slippery slope of sin, and maybe we, do, we too 
need to consider our life and decide for ourselves, are we going to get off the slippery slope of sin? Are we going to continue down this slope to more and more sin? We need to listen to the words of Jesus and to cut it off and to make sure that we don't play or flirt with sin, but to make a clean break of it. So where are we on the slope of sin if we are on it? We need to stop and get off this slope. The passage then goes off, goes on and says, now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness, and then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Now again, the author is very subtle, right? You notice he doesn't name her as Bathsheba. We already know she's Bathsheba. We already know she's Uriah's wife, but he names her the woman. It's almost like from David's perspective, now that he has used her for her sex, she is no longer a person, right? She's an object to be discarded. Just like uh, someone who smokes cigarettes doesn't need the cigarette pack after you finish the cigarettes, she's discarded. She's of no more use to David. But unfortunately, the sin is not so easily discarded. Now, there's a problem. She's pregnant. And there's a big scandal which is brewing. You can just imagine the headlines of the Straits Times Jerusalem or the Judah Lianhe Wang Pao, right? Because apparently, people tell me that's the most uh, gossipy of all the newspapers in Singapore saying, David's love child exposed, or David the dirty cheating rat. And so here we see that David has a problem. So what is he going to do about it? Is he going to confront this problem? Is he going to confess his sins? We shall see. So David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. David asked him how the war was going. But verse 8 is where the crucial part comes in. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. What a strange thing to say, right? You mean there are no toilets or, you know, places where Uriah can wash his feet in the palace? Well, in those days, I think washing your feet was like a euphemism to have sex. Uh, I remember when I was a much younger person, I was a teenager, one of my older teenage friends said, oh, he's going to his girlfriend's house to play, play. It's like, play, play. Play tennis, play Monopoly, play chess. What is he playing with, right? Well, I guess in those days, many, many years ago when I was younger, play, play was a euphemism to make out or to have sex or get it on or whatever. And so that's what David is saying to Uriah. Go to your house and have sex with Bathsheba. But the problem is, as we go on the narrative, repeatedly we're told Uriah did not go home. Over and over again, David suggests, uses innuendo, gives him presents, tries to get him drunk, but Uriah does not go home. And if you don't go home, you can't play play, right? You can't wash your feet, you can't have sex, and therefore, the plan doesn't work. He can't cover up sin this way. David still has a problem. If Sheba is still pregnant, Uriah hasn't had sex. Wife. 
What does David do next? In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. Shocking, right? In it, he wrote, put Uriah at the front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so that he'll be struck down and die. Amazing, he sends the same letter, which is the death warrant for Uriah, with Uriah back to the front. And so while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at the place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men of David's army fell more over Uriah the Hittite died. We need to pause for a moment, take in the horror of just what David did. Uriah is not a parable. Uriah is not some metaphor. Uriah was a real person who was married to a real person, Bathsheba. He died, and not just Uriah died, but some of the men of David's army died. So on that day, how many innocent people died to cover up David's sin? How many families were left without a father? How many wives were left without a husband? And all to cover up David's sin. And so what we see here is David embarks further on this slippery slope of sin, right? He doesn't get off. And the lies and the murder now are added to his catalog of sins. Now, how sad that must have been for the first readers of Samuel. How sad in the sense, as we read, right? Here was the best of us, right? The one who was loved by God, the one who had chosen, was chosen by God, who was with God, one who was after God's heart. But the sad reality in many ways is just like a human being. He's fallen and he's flawed and he's sinful, just like any human being. I remember many years ago, I went to uh, London to visit my son and we stayed with uh, my wife's cousin and we were in the car um, with my wife's cousin's, uh, my, my wife's cousin's wife, who's a British person. And you know, British people, she's a typical British woman. She's quite um, uh, like uh, not a jokey person, like a very serious person, you know, stiff upper lip and all that stuff. Anyway, we're in the car and we were driving around and then this song came on, which is called Human. Uh, I don't know whether you've heard about, heard this song before, but you can listen to it. It's really, really catchy, right? Anyway, so the song comes on the radio and the, uh, the, uh, I guess the chorus is, you know, cause I'm only human, cause I'm only hu human. It's like, don't put the blame on me. Don't put the blame on me, right? And uh, this British woman who's very staid and everything started singing this song, right? It's just so catchy. And I remember looking at the video of this song many, uh, like after this song, and it's really interesting, right? Because in the music video for this song, it's all about how this guy is complaining about how his girlfriend is accusing him of cheating on her. He keeps saying, like, I'm only human, right? I'm only human, don't put the blame on me. In the video, like there are all these different faces and people transposed onto the singer's face. What he's trying to say really is that we are all only human, right? We're all sinful. In the same way, David is like that, right? He's only human after all, right? 
As impressive as he is in the Mount Everest of impressiveness, he's only human and he still sins. And that's what the New Testament actually teaches us. Right? In the book of Romans, it says, what, we can, what can we conclude? Right? We are all Jews and Gentiles alike under the power of sin. As it's written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've become together worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And that's David, right? David is like the best God's people, but he's only human after all. See, it's so easy for us to overestimate how good we can be. Again, I had this uncle, and I always tried to evangelize him. And you know what he tells me? Oh, I don't need God because I'm a good man. I can keep the Ten Commandments. Well, if David, who is the best of us, can't keep the Ten Commandments, then how can my uncle keep the Ten Commandments? He can't, right? There is no way any of us can keep the Ten Commandments. And so the first step to turning to God is to acknowledge our own sinfulness, is to acknowledge that we, just like David, are human and flawed and fallen, and we are terrible, wretched sinners before God. But coming back to the narrative, David is able to blind the eyes of all his people. He's gotten away with it. He's committed adultery. He's murdered Uriah. He's gotten a girl, and now he thinks everything is perfectly fine, except for one person. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord, or even, I, li I like the translation from the other translations more, what David had done had, was evil in the eyes of God, right? So once God now comes into the picture, because you know in the narrative God is, hasn't appeared so far, now that God has come into the picture, God is going to do something about this terrible sin. So what does God do? He sends Nathan the prophet to go to the king. Part of the role of the king is to be the judge who rules on difficult cases in his kingdom. And so Nathan comes to David, and we presume that in David's mind, this is a real case, right? So Nathan says, look, there was a rich man, and he had many, many, many sheep, right? The number is mega, gigantic, ginormous. It's a super, superlative, right? It's like sheep, like ants, uncountable, right? That's the number of sheep that this rich man had. In contrast, there was a poor man. And the poor man was on the other side of the spectrum. He only had one sheep, one little sheep. But when the rich man had a visitor come from overseas, he took that one sheep from that poor man and he killed that sheep. Now David, as role as king, his responsibility is to make an adjudication, a verdict over this real case that he hears. And what does he say? David burned of anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. And David's actually bringing the verdict on himself, right? This is the verdict that justice requires. Because if you look in the Old Testament in the law, the punishment for adultery is death. Punishment for murder is death. The verdict and justice required of David is death. So what happens then? 
Nathan goes on to explain what God is going to do as a consequence of his sin. Right? So because he murdered Uriah, God says, the sword will never depart from your house because you are guilty of murder. Violent murder will happen in your family. And that's what's going to happen from here to the end of 2 Samuel. God says, because you committed adultery, then your wives, and David, remember, has many wives and concubines, they will have someone commit adultery against you from within your own household. And then Nathan declared to David, and you will die. As surely as the Lord lives, you will die, and God struck David dead. Is that what happened? No, right? That's, that's I guess, logically the, the trajectory of the narrative, and that's what we would expect. But what happens instead? Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Now this goes against all our expectations. And this goes against the trajectory of the narrative. Right? What David deserved, what the Lord says, and what justice demands was death. But instead, David confessed his sins. The Lord took away his sins. And he was forgiven. He did not die. In fact, what he received instead of death was David received the grace of God. Now, I know some of you may be reading this and saying, well, you know, it's very, very unfair, right? Because here was this guy who committed adultery and murdered people. And all he said was, I've sinned against the Lord. And he didn't have to die. Like, doesn't it seem a bit unfair to you? Doesn't it seem a bit, like, too easy for David? Like, don't you feel like David got off bit easy here. Well, luckily for us, David actually shares for us his confession, right? And it takes a bit more than just one sentence, right? In Psalm 51. David wrote this in Psalm 51 for this occasion. And David said in his confession, I know my transgressions and my sins are always before me. Against you and you alone, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I'm sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. So first thing we want to note here is the confession of David was not something which, you know, he just used his mouth, said, oh, okay, I sinned, right? Very flippantly and very casually, no? He realized that the depth of his sin, he's evil, he's sinful from birth, he's broken, he's contrite. That is the nature of his confession. And look at what he calls on God. He says, have mercy on me according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. So he calls on love, mercy, and compassion as the character of God to blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquities, cleanse me from all my sins, to cleanse me hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all of my iniquity. See, this is a prayer of someone who knows the character of God, that God is a merciful, loving, compassionate God. And when he blots out, washes away, cleanses, and hides his face, and blots out your iniquity, you will be clean, and you will be whiter than snow. All your sins will be taken away. So what David deserves really is justice, right? But what he receives instead 
is God's grace. That God's grace is greater than David's sin. Many years ago, I remember talking to a helping hand brother. And I met him in the canteen at Helping Hand. And he was an old man at that stage, right? I can still remember him, old guy. And I met him in the canteen and he told me that uh, he'd done many bad things in his life. He told me that he'd actually been convicted and sent to jail for kidnapping. So at that stage, I moved my chair a bit further back. This guy's a very serious criminal, right? But here he was, he was an old man at the stage, and he said to me, but by God's grace, I'm saved. I know Jesus, and through Jesus, I know I'm forgiven. See, he was a man who knew the character of God, right? He knew that even though his sins were terrible, horrific, but yet, because he had turned to God, he confessed his sins, the character of God would now give him the New Testament tells us the same thing. This is what the New Testament tells us. In 1 John, it says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It means he will take away our sins. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. His word is not in us. It would be a mistake today to leave the church and think, okay, I am better than David because I've never committed adultery and I've never murdered anyone. So I hope that for all of us here, that is true. But that would be a mistake, right? Because we may not have fallen as far as David committing the actual acts of adultery and murder. But we are all sinners, just like David. See, you think about it for a moment. What exactly did God say David did wrong? Well, God said, look, I've given you all these things, right? In fact, if, if you thought that I've given you too little, I would have given you more. Why did you despise the word of Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? And why did you despise me? Well, according to this, all of us are sinful, right? Have, have any of us here never despised God's word or despised God and, and done something that we knew was wrong? All, right, all of us have despised God. Have all of us here ever been, not been ungrateful to God in not being grateful for the things that God has given us, especially Jesus Christ. All of us here, myself included, have been ungrateful to God one way or another. And so what we need to see here is that we need to respond like David. We need to know the character of God, that he is a God of grace, that when we do sin, and we will sin, we can confess our sins, and God will forgive us. He will give us grace. Now the passage then goes on, the last section that we saw, right? Then David, after the first son of Bathsheba died, David comforted his wife, Bathsheba. She went to her, he went to her and made love to her, and she gave birth to a son. They named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. Because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedediah. And Jedediah means loved by God. Now this is really significant, right? Because it shows that the grace of God actually continues on to David's life. It's important because last week, we saw that God had promised in 2 Samuel 7 that God would build the house of David forever. 
And so those promises continue to hold. Through the grace of God, he brings forth another son, Solomon. This son, Solomon, would be the next king, and actually he would be a good king, he would be a wise king, and he would actually extend the kingdom of God's people even greater, and he would build the temple of God. But more importantly, through Solomon, eventually over many generations will come Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. So in Matthew chapter 1, genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, we see David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now this is God's grace, not just to David, but through David, right? The God's grace through David comes to us all the way in our lives in Jesus Christ. So if you look at this diagram, through Solomon, the grace of God comes to us because Jesus comes and he is the sinless one. Right? Through Jesus, we finally have one who's not fallen or only human, just like David or us, but he is special because Jesus is the son of God who does not sin. But also, the grace of God comes to us through David and Solomon because Jesus is the one, the sinless one who dies on the cross and takes away all our sins for those who are waiting for him. But lastly, also, through Jesus, we will be given these incorruptible bodies where we will no longer be human in the sense where we sin anymore, but we will be new beings where we will be righteous once and for all. So the grace that God shows David here has forever universal implications, right? Because through David comes the sinless one, dies on the cross for us, and we can look forward to incorruptible bodies where we will no longer sin. So we began and looked at David confessing his sin, and Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. But how is that done? How, how does God actually manage to fulfill that? How does God take away David's sin of adultery and murder? It's because of its fulfillment in Jesus, the sinless one dying on the cross. So I began today's uh, passage by saying that, you know, we need to find comfort when we see the firestorm of God's judgment coming. Well, how can we do so? Because we rely on the fulfillment of God's grace in Jesus Christ. The character of God is one of grace, but its fulfillment is seen on the cross in Jesus Christ. We began with the introduction of uh, this big firestorm which hit the, the island of, uh, in the town of Lihana in Hawaii, right? And I was reading that actually when the firefighters want to protect an area from uh, the fire, you know what they do? They actually build something called a fire break. And so here what we see on the screen is not uh, a fire going out of control, but actually it's a fire break. And what they do is they clear the land on one side and then they burn the land up. So you can actually see it clearer here in this picture where they actually created this fire break by removing all the vegetation and burning off all the undergrowth. Now what happens then is that the fire is unable to, if there is a big fire coming, to burn through this area. And that's how you stop the fire coming, right? The firestorm coming. Well, in a sense, what God has done is he's created this fire break for us. Through his grace, he's created this fire break when he sent his sinless one, Jesus, to die on the cross. Right? Because 
on the cross where Jesus dies, the fire of God's judgment has already burned. And God has already, in a sense, burned our judgment, our sins on the cross of Jesus. And if we are at the cross with Jesus, then when the firestorm of God's judgment comes, we will be safe. So what we must always do is stand on the cross, right? Stand in Christ, stand on God's grace, because it's only there that we will be safe. So today, we've learned a great deal. And lastly, the most important thing is then that we always know character of God's grace. That's who he is. As, as certain as the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, that's God's character, right? His grace. And we rely on the fulfillment of his grace and the sending of his son, Jesus. Because it's on Jesus where we will find forgiveness for our sins. True enough, we will all sin because we are all human, just like David. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, Help us to feel the sober reality of David's sin. That here was someone who was chosen by you, who was one after your heart, who was with you, and who had been so impressive for so long, for 25 chapters. But here we see in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12 that he is no better than any of us because he is only human. He gets on the slippery slide of sin and he gets right to the very bottom, guilty of adultery, deception, and murder of the worst kind. But yet, Father, we see that he knew you as you truly are. He knew your character of grace and he cried out for your grace. He confessed his sins. He was broken, he was contrite. And he called out that you would wash him clean, that you would blot out his sins, that you would hide your face from his sins. And he knew that you were gracious. Dear Father, help us to see that that is who you are. Help us to know that we too, will, there will be times where we sin. If we say we do not sin, we make you out to be a liar. Help us therefore to always remember and to rely and to trust on your grace. And especially as we've seen it fulfilled the sending of Jesus, your son, the sinless one, to die on the cross for our sins. So dear Father, we pray for each and every one of us here, that we would confess our sins before you, know of your grace, and rely on your grace in Jesus on the cross. We pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We'll now have a short time for discussion. So please uh, turn to your neighbours and discuss what you've taken away from the sermon, or you can also discuss these reflection questions. Question one, what have we learned today about our sin condition before God? And what have we learned about how I should respond to God's grace? So please take this time to turn to your neighbour and have a short time of discussion. <laughs> 